Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. Ever since the turn of the new year, global news headlines have been dominated by news out of Iran, where a recent U.S. airstrike killed Iran's most senior military leader, General Qasem Soleimani, resulting in growing tensions in the Middle East. Well, back at Voices 2019, we shed some light on Iran's underground fashion scene. Iran is a country that we in the West know very little about. But over the past few years, I've been receiving messages on Instagram from young fashion creatives who have written to me saying that behind closed doors, there is actually a vibrant fashion culture in Iran, and they are longing to connect with all of us. It seemed like the perfect topic to explore at Voices 2019. To shed some light on Iran's underground fashion scene, we were honored to introduce four Iranian fashion creatives to share their experiences of their vibrant culture with us and also to demystify some of our misconceptions about their country. Based in Chicago, Hoda Katebi is the voice behind the political fashion platform Juju Azad, and Hoda opened our Voices session with a powerful talk which explained how Iran's fashion economy has been impacted both by an extreme regime in Iran, but also sanctions from the US, UK, and other Western countries. Hoda was joined by Shirin and Shiva Vakar, two self-taught fashion designers and co-founders of the Iranian fashion label Vakar, who came all the way from Tehran to join us, and the brilliant Iran-born, London-based Masoud Golsorki, founder and editorial director of Tank Magazine, who interviewed Hoda, Shirin, and Shiva. Together, these four challenged our assumptions about a country that is largely closed off from the West. On this week's BOF podcast, we go inside Iran's underground fashion industry. Um, I had this really cute flowery speech I was excited to give, but given what's happening in Iran right now, um, I think it's only fair to sort of take a step back and talk about the situation and kind of contextualize that. So um, right now, it's been almost a week in which the Iranian government has actually shut down the internet, and Shirin, Shiva, and I couldn't even be in touch until they landed in the UK. I haven't been able to be in touch with my family for the past near week either. Um, and this sort of constant and current sort of uprising or protests are really in part due to economic um, insecurities and a sort of economic degradation of society that has been caused by government corruption and mismanagement of funds, but also U.S. and U.K. sanctions that have literally crippled society. Every single Iranian, every single day, is affected by sanctions by this country and by the United States. Things like medicine is unaffordable. Every day, curable diseases people are dying from because they don't have access to medical care or medicine because of the high prices. Food, commodities, everyday little things are so inaccessible to every Iranian right now because of the situation. And so it's so important that, yes, what's happening in Iran is horrible, but I think we also have to understand that the United States and the UK and many of our countries are also complicit in what's happening right now. The reason and these difficulties that Shirin and Shiva will be talking about more, um, both domestically but also from the sanctions that these countries are having, creates a larger, more complicated situation that we really need to be unpacking. And fashion is inherently political and intertwined in all of this. And yes, obviously in Iran, there's a mandatory dress code and um, fashion may be a little bit more political explicitly there, but throughout the entire world, there is no such thing as apolitical fashion. It does not exist. 
If anybody says that their fashion is apolitical, please punch them. This Muslim is condoning violence. Um, please don't call prevent on me. Um, but it's, it's true, because fashion ultimately at its core is a mode of communication. We're communicating something. We're able to convey really powerful messages, tell people about a culture, about society, or we're not, and we're silent. And silence is complacency. At a time where we truly cannot afford to be, the world is fucking on, I can say fucking? <laughs> the world is fucking on fire right now. How can we ever think that what we're creating and putting out in the world should not be engaging with this? And all of us wear clothes and are in the business of fashion. <laughs> I did not even mean that fun. Um, and yet, are we actually truly grappling with the complexities of how fashion is truly political on so many levels? Beyond just a slogan, which could mean or may not mean something based on where you're producing it, um, fashion is even more inherently political if we think about production and consumption. What does it mean that the majority of our clothes are produced in Southeast Asia by people who look like me, and yet the majority of it is consumed here in the West? Our whole industry relies upon and continues to profit from histories of imperialism, genocide, sanctions that have plagued the entire world, and yet we still profit from it. We're living in an active empire. The British Empire still exists. People are still profiting off of the fact that there is no economic growth happening in countries like Indonesia because we profit from it and we value this, and our entire industry is built upon it. So what does that mean? And also, the fact that fashion literally frames our bodies. Like, literally, every time we step outside, we're deciding how we want our body to be actually presented in the world. There's nothing else that's more intimately connected to our identities or the manifestation of that in public space than fashion. It literally wraps us, it, like it touches our skin. So what does it mean for something that's made in a product of violence to be rubbing off on our skin every single day? We're so, so concerned about what we eat, what goes in our bodies, but how about what touches our skin constantly, every single day, most nights, some nights. Um, but also what it conveys about maybe religion, the fact that I'm visibly Muslim, my experiences growing up in the United States as someone visibly Muslim has been marked with physical assault, being called terrorist every single day. And this is a reality that every day I step out of my house and choose to present myself in a way that I know that I'm going to be added to another government surveillance watch list. And if you don't have to think about every day when you step outside of your house, who is going to profile you or what police is going to stop you and search you, that's privilege. It doesn't make that decision any less political. So we have to think about that. And right now, especially, the fact that the Muslim identity is trending in the fashion industry, my identity is sexy. Every single person wants a Muslim who looks like me walking down their runway in their latest campaign. But how can we have the fact that right now we're at a time of heightened anti-Muslim racism on a global level, partnered with the time that we see Muslim faces taking up space across fashion magazines? What does that mean for our industry? Is that a trend? Or are we actually substantially dealing with and grappling with the manifestations of what it means to support Muslims? What it means to support people of color? How can Nike, for example, create a pro-hijab that was created with the raw materials by Muslim, Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps in Western China, passed down to Muslims in Indonesia working in sweatshops to produce those Nike apparel, and then sold here, and then be applauded and praised for being so pro-Muslim? Why are we allowing brands and the whole entire fashion industry 
to simplify and reduce our identities into just a hijab. A hijab is not synonymous with being Muslim. But we allow fashion right now to reduce, simplify, and completely annihilate the movements and identities in which we've been working on for decades. I actually call this revolution washing. It's like greenwashing, which I think most of us are familiar with, but it's with the revolution. Every brand wants to be sexy and part of the revolution right now, but what are you actually doing? Are you actually simplifying and reducing and taking away the significance of what it means to be Muslim, the complex experiences of what it feels like to wear a hijab every single day, and know that the government simultaneously is going to use that against me, or use that to invade Afghanistan. And so I'm really excited, really excited, <laughs> to also be able to be with Shirin and Shiva on this panel to understand that the world is fucking complicated. Like, there's a lot, that shit is happening every day, everywhere. But rather than just being afraid of that and taking a step back and being like, okay, we're gonna make this simple, like I don't want to be controversial, we have to engage with that. Fashion should not be in the business of simplifying things, but embracing the complexity and really being able to grapple and imagine a better world and then actively work toward building that. So thank you so much. Now I'm gonna welcome Masood, Shirin, and Shiva to talk to us some more and go in further depth on the conversation. Hello, everyone. Uh, Western governments often worry about uh, Iran developing nuclear weapons. You should worry about our women. <laughs> 40 million more. Where'd that come from? Uh, thank you. She is a treasure. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, I, I think we're gonna, um, I'm going to do my best to uh, be the kind of the framer of conversations. Um, maybe to cool things down a bit. <laughs> let them, I'm let heated. Them I can go on. <laughs> um, maybe maybe I, I'd, I'd love for you to share one at a time, maybe, how, why you, how, how, how you came to fashion and why you chose fashion as a... As a maybe we should start with you, Shiva Jan. Sure. Hello, everyone. I want to thank you, BOF and Imran, for having us here. It's really a great opportunity for us to be here. Um, it started for us as a very young age. We used to see our mom and aunts making clothes out of pre-made patterns from fashion magazines. And we just like imitated them by making um, clothes out of my grandmother's praying chador and we used to um drape yeah <laughs> um after we got older um we started to make changes to our own clothes and we used to get so many compliments but we didn't get it very um serious because it wasn't a thing to be a fashion designer mm. um so we did different things i studied business ma ma business management she studied visual arts um, but we weren't very happy with what we were doing. It was about 2012. Instagram was very popular among everybody. Yeah. We said, okay, we should do something we love together. Mm. And we have this opportunity to show our work. So we started Vakar in 2013. Amazing. Um, obviously, the, um, you know, the very particular thing about doing fashion in Iran is that uh, the very idea of it is sort of kind of illegal, like to yeah. produce it without restriction, uh, to be creative without, you know, like the way normal fashion creatives are creative, is a sort of breaking the law. Yeah. Uh, then distribution is difficult, as you know. Yeah. Um, 
production is almost impossible. Yes. <laughs> uh, but we've made huge strides in communicating fashion, I feel. Mm -hmm. I feel in many ways we kind of lead the world mm -hmm. uh, by the sophisticated use of social media, for example. Um, I thought maybe, maybe we can also just talk about the issue of hijab because it's like kind of like the elephant in the room uh, before we move forward. I mean, it's a kind of long and complex history. Uh, Hoda, I would love Hoda to elaborate on this a bit more. But, you know, I grew up uh, <clears throat> in the 60s, my auntie, in order, to, uh, there was kind of enforced dehijabization. So the sort of, um, uh, it was the secularists who were in power. So for my auntie to go and study in university, she had to take her headscarf off. But for my sister, after the revolution, to go to university, she had to put the headscarf on, <laughs> both times against their will. So this is the kind of history of kind of um, force and pressure applied to women and women's body that kind of contextualizes your life. And I have to say, feel very guilty as an Iranian male here. Uh, <laughs> but Khodajan, maybe you can, you can pick that up and, and just sort of say how it kind of frames your, frames your reference. Definitely. Yeah. And I think this is a really important question, given that when we think about Iran today, we think just what we see on television, all black and white. Um, and that's obviously not the case. And I think that fashion has also played such an interesting and fascinating role in shaping um, gender and particularly queerness in Iran um, and the way in which hijab has sort of been strung along. Um, uh, so to take us a little bit back, back in the day, 19th century, <laughs> Qajar dynasty. So this is an Islamic dynasty during um, and in Iran that also if we look at fashion during this time, we see the majority of people wearing long, loose, flowy clothes. Um, and if anyone can kind of guess what's happening in this photo, this is actually called the amorous couple. Um, amorous couple because they can't even identify, historians still can't identify gender on this image. And there's a reason for that, uh, is because during this time in Iran, gender was not defined in the same way that we define it here in the West. In the West, everyone loves to like hyper-categorize and put a box around every single fucking thing. But that's not just how like people didn't identify based on who they had sex with in Iran in the 19th century and beyond. Um, and across the Middle East, actually, this is very common. And so we see in this image a very clear indication that sort of gender fluidity was pretty normative in Iran. And the fashion really mirrors that. And we see that everywhere that we look, um, a lot of sort of the, the sort of gender ambiguity was pretty normative in Iran. Um, fast forward a few years, as Iran starts having uh, relations actually with the United Kingdom, uh, British parliamentarians during these economic deals in order to strike uh, and sort of build economic relations, British parliamentarians started coming over to Iran um, and then going back. And uh, it's kind of a funny story, but uh, because British people were wearing these tight-ass pantaloons um, and Iranians were dressing like this, by the time that British parliamentarians went back to the government, we see um, these Iranian dignitarians actually sending lustful letters back to the U.S. To the men. To the U.K., yeah, to the men, being like, badass, though. The tight um, pants. <laughs> the tight pants. We love that. Yeah, yeah, because like they were wearing very tight clothing and Iranians were dressed like this. So... Of course, one of the biggest threats to the patriarchy or imperialism is a man becoming the object of desire. Um, so through that time, uh, the British actually blamed Islam for why queerness was so normative in Iran. They're like, because your women are covered, your men are lusting after the wrong people. You have to be lusting after women. Um, so you guys are all backwards because you're gay, um, which is funny given what the conversation is now about Iran. Um, and so through this sort of wanting to have economic and stronger economic relationships with Iran, a sort of forced heterosexuality of Iran came about and in part enforced through the clothing. So specifically, there was actually a Pahlavi hat rule 
this image. That ugly ass hat that he's wearing, that was mandatory. Like you had to wear that for men every time you left your house because they were trying to make Iranians look more British. So that you would look more modern and you'd be able to get these economic deals. Um, the same thing was happening to women. So there was actually a period of forced unveiling that everyone loves to conveniently forget in Iran as well, where as Masood Jan also mentioned stories of his aunt being forced to unveil in order to go to the university. My grandma has similar stories. Um, and the role of fashion in sort of making sure that women became the object of desire and created this sort of huge class difference in Iran where hijab became a marker of low socioeconomic class and higher economic classes that were able to have relationships with the UK, um, sort of dress in manners like that. As we progress, uh, the revolution in 1979 happened uh, as a actually very heavily influenced by Marxism as well. And the, after the revolution happened, a lot of um, Marxist ideology was inspired by that they wanted to create a society in which class was erased. So this sort of egalitarian form of dress in which you wouldn't be able to tell who was lower class and who was upper class. So they forced hijab or a headscarf on all Iranian women. Um, of course, this is still barbaric, just as much as forced unveiling is as well. Um, and so this is also marks the time right after the revolution where Iran started a war with Iran and Iraq had war. Uh, so the entire fashion industry was also destroyed. So all efforts would be able to be directed toward the war front. And we also see images um, from advertisements and women holding bags to images of this male war martyr covering sort of public space in Iran. And that continues to today. Um, so we still see this sort of almost queerness in the images. We see this very like rosy cheeks, this very like effeminate features um, on the faces that we still see that sort of remnant from that time. And uh, these people, Zagash Irshad, uh, basically they're like the fashion police. Well, they, they enforce uh, Islamic um, but the morality, yeah, the code of codes of dress. So they're not normally this good looking. This is a screenshot uh, from a movie. This, this is from a movie. <laughs> they don't look this cool. <laughs> um, but they basically, they, I mean, they basically, every time they see a fashion faux pas in their eyes, uh, they can actually cite you and ticket you. Um, and so it's this sort of has also now created this sort of ambiguity in terms of public space, particularly in Tehran, where one day you could get stopped by your outfit and the next day they could just like ignore you and keep walking. So this has sort of left the, the enforcement of these dress codes really in the hands of the Gashta Irshad. So as presidents have changed um, and different forms of leniency, laws and regulations have come and shaped the, the space, also the fashion industry has started to thrive as well. And also that cute photo, it's Rashidi and Juno when we first <laughs> met, best friends in 2015. Um, and so this is these last, that last photo is a photo from my book. And the middle photo is actually a photo from their latest collection, um, the different label. And so right now what we're seeing is a lot of this, this, uh, this dress code that we feel like is so strict actually loosening up. There's a lot of sort of various regulations that we see people are normatively breaking the law in Iran and almost every single young person does it. Um, and we see also this sort of play on gender ambiguity and um, inspiration being very multifaceted as the people have today now too. No, so you see, it's, it's a bit complicated. Um, I'd love to ask Shirin, um, the creative part of the duo, uh, you know, design, being, being a designer is a tough enough job everywhere. Uh, you can see it's a little bit more complex and complicated. Uh, tell us about your experience and, and how you tackle, how do you, how do, you uh, do what you do? Um, hello, everybody. I want to thank BOF for having us. Um, sorry for my English, I'm going to talk uh, in um, Persian, so Masoud can translate for me. Um, همونطور که هدا گفتش با توجه به 
چیزهایی که توی فاکتورهایی که توی ایران هستش As Hoda said, um, the tons of restrictions applying to what I do in Iran. همه دیزاینرها از جمله ما از این نقطه منفی استفاده که به صورت مثبت استفاده کرد. All designers in Iran kind of in a way forced to turn what's a negative into a positive positive point. و این باعث شدش که ما از این موقعیت استفاده کنیم و با وجود محدودیت ها لباس های طراحی شده بتونیم برای خانم ها درست کنیم. و برای ما اول کار این یه انگیزه شد که لباسایی درست کنیم که به جای اینکه خانم ها اونا رو مجبور باشن بپوشن اونها رو انتخاب کنن و دوست داشته باشن و یه بار سنگین رو برداریم براشون کم کنیم as forms of self expression rather than as uh, instruments of kind of torture or social control لباسایی که من اعتقاد دارم خیلی از مخاطب‌های ما حتی اونها رو خارج از ایران می‌پوشن و خانم‌هایی که غیر ایرانی هستن اونها رو به عنوان پیرهن ازشون استفاده می‌کنن and it's delightful to see that uh, their designs traveling outside the country to for women who even don't have those uh, restrictions um, enjoying uh, their creativity That's amazing. Um, the other aspect, obviously, the other half of the equation is uh, uh, the way you conduct business in Iran, which mm. is so incredible, uh, inventive, and uh, I think is incredibly clever. Tell us how you, how, how, you, how you take the lemon and make it into lemonade. Oh, it's so very hard for us, not yes. just as emerging designers, but also we are Iranians and live in Iran. We have... face lots of sanctions lots of restrictions um the sourcing fabric finding production houses convincing production houses to make our like pieces all these um, problems we take them aside and we are in iran we have problems to send our products out- outside of iran because we have just iran post Oh. Not FedEx, not everything. No logistics. DHL, yeah. no logistics um, we can, the banking system is... On lockdown. Completely. Yes, that's the problem. Yeah. Um, but we find ways. Yes. Like, and you we thrive. try our yeah. best to find, find the way, and I believe we did. Um, so we just go through Instagram. Mm-hmm. We, have, we try to take the... best pictures we can yes. and show to the um, customers and they order the clothes via Instagram and it takes us a long way to send them the clothes but we try to make it right no that's amazing I have to say that you have an incredibly thriving business uh, fanatical uh, audience uh, passionate and and loving followership when I kind of read your Uh, comments on your uh, Instagram makes me want to cry. It's just <laughs> clearly something over and above fashion. I see the time is running out. Uh, there was one other thing I wanted to potentially talk about. Um, so maybe Shirin, <laughs> okay. tell me, what do you want to do next? Like, where next? What do you want to do? What's the, what's the future? You, you've made this work. 
This is almost impossible and you did it. What do you want to do next? What's next for you? Um, درسته که خیلی شرایط برای ما سخت از لحاظ سیاست توی ایران ولی از اونجایی که این کشور ما از خانوادهمون اونجا من politics makes it very difficult for us to to act and to work but this is our country و ما واقعا خیلی با تمام همه مشکلاتی که داریم میتونیم از پس همه مشکلاتمون بر بیایم و داریم از کارمون لذت میبریم توی ایران. Despite all the challenges, this is our country. We are committed to it, and we are actually having fun doing what we do. ولی اگر میتونستیم از ایران خارج بشیم با توجه به سیاستی که هستش و میتونستیم بیشتر کارمون رو پیش ببریم و موقعیت‌های خوبی برمون پیش میومد و خودمون رو بتونیم بیشتر نشون بدیم خیلی خوب میشد و would be amazing if we could establish more contact with um, uh, the outside world the outside world the outside I don't want to use that expression like the inside world the outside um, you know that she was just saying that how much more the business could achieve if they could connect with design, with talent, with production, and with the rest of the fashion industry abroad, because they, you know, they have tons to offer. Uh, yes. Mm, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> کارمونو بهتر نشون بدیم و امیدوارم این اتفاق توی ایران بیفته ولی اگر این پیش نیاد ما سعی خودمونو میکنیم تا کارمونو خوب پیش ببریم و گسترش بدیم کارمونو به کشورهای دیگه تا بتونیم با همه آدمایی که تو همه جا زندگی میکنن کارمونو بدیم that even though she's overcoming current challenges and she's committed to uh, running her business in Iran, she wishes to establish bonds and bridges to audiences to uh, share her creativity with. So Hoda, beyond your work as a a creative communicator, you've also um, uh, taken steps in making form of social enterprise that you've just maybe tell them briefly about yeah um actually a lot of the inspiration came from meeting Shirin and Shiva and learning about the way that the underground fashion scene in Iran actually works and how um localized and intimate the relationships they have with their not just their customers but also every single person in their supply chain they actually brought snacks that their tailor had brought for them for the <laughs> flight that I ate in their room um but so that understanding of this intimacy between the maker and all the way down to the producer I think was just such a beautiful relationship um and as an abolitionist uh, an abolitionist is basically the idea that industries that are inherently violent can't be reformed. So like slavery, you can't reform slavery. You have to get rid of it because you can tell a slave owner to be nicer, but that's not the same. Um, And I think fast fashion is actually an industry that is quite the same. And I think fast fashion requires abolition. Um, There's no way that we can ever create ethical fast fashion, no matter what, or sustainable fast fashion. And so a systemic... Thank you. (laughs) Um, Running out of time. So, no, I'm kidding. Uh, so as my, I guess, abolitionist approach to the fast fashion industry is how can we think about um, the way in which our clothes are ma- made systemically? Um, and so I run Blue Tin Production, which is an all-women, immigrant and refugee-run clothing manufacturing workers cooperative. <laughs> uh, so it's basically a bunch of women uh, who now are my best friends, and we basically create clothes for designers around the world um, and at wages that they've set internally, and everyone owns the business and gets to decide exactly what that looks like. Like, and that has actually 
inspired in part by the relationship that we have as well. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. You. That was so inspiring. And for you to make the effort to come all the way from Tehran is, uh, we're really honored to have you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>